0: Let's get started.
1: Scott here. As we move into September, we begin to benefit from the fact that we are now more than two months away from the summer solstice, the date of the longest amount of daylight and shortest amount of darkness. Later this month will be the fall equinox, so we are now able to get out a bit earlier in the evening than during much of the summer. By about 8.30 or so, it is time to walk out onto my front porch to see what I can see. When one walks out into dusk or early darkness, it may not always be clear as to the locations of north, south, east, and west, unless you actually pay attention on this based on, say, the rising and setting points of the sun. You could use a compass, but the dark skies can also help. One object I like to look for each night that I'm out is the Big Dipper. That pattern of stars stands out quite easily and can also be used to find directions as darkness falls. The dipper is found low in the northwest at this time of the year, so close by trees may hide part or all of it from view, making it necessary to step around a bit to give a clear view of that direction. Once it is found, the front two stars of the dipper, the pointer stars, provide a line in the direction of the north star, Polaris. I start with the one marking the bottom of the front of the dipper's bowl and imagine the line to be drawn toward the one marking the lip of the bowl. That line continues on to Polaris. Polaris is not the brightest star in the sky but it does remain fixed throughout the year. It is at the same height above the horizon from one's location and in the same direction. With that knowledge I now know that when I step out onto my front porch The direction I am looking is generally north. If I look past the North Star on over toward the northeastern sky, at about the same height as the Big Dipper, I notice a W-shaped pattern of Cassiopeia the Queen. Cassiopeia is better seen later in the fall when it can be found higher up in the northeast, but the W-shaped pattern does stand out easily in the early evening sky, so finding it is not too difficult at this time of the year. But what about planets? There are planets to be found, but the most prominent are located in the south. So I turn from my looking to the north 180 degrees. There almost due south are two bright points of light, one just brighter than the other. Those are the planets Jupiter and Saturn. Although almost comparable in size, Saturn being the smaller, the difference in brightness is due to their distances from us. Jupiter is closer, so that it will catch your eye as darkness begins to fall. With additional darkness, Saturn reveals itself. A small telescope, even a spotting scope of about 20 power or so, will likely show some of Jupiter's four largest satellites. How many depends on where they are located in their orbit around Jupiter. Watching them dance in his small telescope night to night after first discovering them convinced Galileo that they orbited Jupiter, thus demonstrating the belief of the time That all celestial objects orbit the Earth was a fallacy. This actually began the scientific fall from grace of the Earth centered universe model that was popular up to that time. As to Saturn in that same spotting scope, you might detect that it is oblong, but you would need a bit more magnification, which usually comes with a larger telescope, to see its rings are separate from the planetary body itself. Such a larger scope might also showcase Saturn's largest satellite. Titan. Perhaps you recall that back in 2005, the Huygens probe, launched from the Saturn orbiting Cassini spacecraft, successfully landed on Titan, taking pictures of the surface and landing site while active. We continue to learn much of Titan from that mission. The other bright planet of interest doesn't rise until later in the evening. Mars is quite noticeable once it clears the horizon around 10 p.m. or so but over the next month it will rise sooner and sooner after sunset. We are catching up to Mars in our faster orbit and will overtake it on October 6th. One week later on October 13th Mars would be in the configuration referred to as opposition. That is, it will be in the opposite part of the sky as the Sun. All outer planets are brightest at opposition because we are closer to them although closest approach may be a week or so on either side of opposition. Though a little dimmer than it was when in opposition back in 2018, it still will outshine many of the stars, making it easy to spot once it clears the horizon. There is a rival to Mars in its redness in the southern sky at present. To the west of Saturn and Jupiter, one sees the bright star Antares. Its name means rival of Mars. Antares is in the constellation Scorpius the Scorpion and marks the heart of that scorpion in the sky. West of Antares one can spot a group of four stars that make out a letter T on its side. Antares would be at the base of that T. This would be the head and beginning of the pincer arms of the scorpion. South and east of Antares one can see a group of stars that makes the shape of a hook. This would be the rest of the body of the scorpion and its long, whip-like tail. Two stars close together at the end of this hook shape would be the stinger of the scorpion. In the area in front of the scorpion, one might imagine those stars as extending out to be the claws of the scorpion. In Greek mythology, this appears to be the case. To the Romans, from which many of the constellations were named, the box of stars there is called Libra the Scales. Libra was seen by the ancient Romans as the scales of justice wielded by Virgo, the constellation found west of Libra and closer to the western horizon. East of the scorpion's tail is the constellation Sagittarius the Archer. The part of that constellation that is most noticeable actually looks like a teapot with three stars marking the lid, four the handle, and three the spout. In fact, this teapot looks like it is pouring hot tea on the tail of the scorpion. And we know it must be hot tea because, under dark skies, steam appears to rise from the spout up toward the top of the sky in the early evening darkness. This is the Milky Way, which can be seen rising up and through a triangle of bright stars called the Summer Triangle. The Summer Triangle is not a constellation. It is what is known as an asterism. Asterisms are collections of stars that make up a recognizable shape or pattern. The Big Dipper is an asterism as is the teapot that makes up part of Sagittarius the Archer. Asterisms are useful because in many instances the constellations themselves can pose a challenge. Few actually look like their namesake. But if we know an asterism is related to them, the asterism may help find those elusive constellations. The Summer Triangle is made of three stars from three different constellations. The brightest and most western of the three is Vega, in the constellation Lyra the Harp. East of Vega is Deneb, in the constellation Cygnus the Swan. The southern star of the three is Altair, in Aquila the Eagle. Lyra is a small, squashed, rectangle of stars just to the south of Vega. As a harp, one can imagine Vega being a jewel embedded in the harp, the rectangle stars being the harp itself. Deneb marks the tail of a large swan in flight. At this time of the year the swan is pictured flying south, appropriate as we see birds flying south as winter comes to call. Stretching south of Deneb is a line of three more stars of about the same brightness which marks its body. Sweeping out from the first star south of Deneb are a pair of stars again nearly the same brightness marking the outstretched wings of this swan. Altair marks the head or neck of Aquila the eagle. Aquila requires a bit more imagination to see, perhaps even a good star map to lay out its wings swept out away from Altair and its stubby body south of Altair. Planets, bright stars, asterisms, and constellations. Lots to occupy an evening as summer slowly loses its grip on the sky and temperatures are much less oppressively hot.
0: That was J. Scott Miller. Professor of Physics and Astronomy at Maysville Community College. Thanks a lot, Scott. Now let's hear from Tim Niddle, owner of Distilled Living, a Lexington, Kentucky company dedicated to education and training about the production and appreciation of bourbon whiskey. We thought with the 2020 Kentucky Derby running on September 5th this year, a little late, We thought it was a perfect time to learn a little bit more about this popular refreshment. Tim Nittle of Lexington is a whiskey industry veteran with over a decade of experience managing and teaching things like palate training and bar management. He consults for distilleries on the topics of product design, route to market, tastings, hospitality management, and experience design. He's also adjunct professor of bourbon studies at Midway University. Take it away, Tim.
2: Hi, I'm Tim Niddle with Distilled Living and I'm a professional bourbon educator. That means I do a lot of bourbon tastings. I like to open my tastings asking the participants, anybody know what bourbon is? Now, usually somebody's gonna say it's delicious, which is great, it's a good start, but it doesn't tell us how it's made, what goes into it, what exactly bourbon is. Now, the first thing to know is bourbon, the word is an adjective, it's not a noun. It describes a category of whiskey. Like we have Scotch whiskey, Irish whiskey, Canadian whiskey, bourbon, whiskey. So when we look at how bourbon is made, we're gonna look at it as a subset of how whiskey is made. Now, whiskey, like all alcoholic beverages, is made by yeast fermenting sugars into alcohol. Now, specifically for whiskey, your sugars must be 100% grain. It's usually malted barley, but you can use any grains that you want to make whiskey. If you're making bourbon whiskey, within your grain recipe, called a grain bill or a mash bill, you must have a minimum of 51% corn. You can have any amount. More than that, but a minimum of 51%. Now you take your grains, you add your yeast, you ferment that into a product called a distiller's beer. Because if we were gonna stop without distilling it, ferment grains, you got beer. But this is destined for distillation. Any old whiskey can be distilled up to 95% alcohol coming off of your stills. But bourbon has to be kept at 80% alcohol or below. That allows more of the flavor from the grains to carry forward to the next step of the process, which is the barrel. Now all whiskeys must be stored in a barrel, but bourbon has got a bunch of rules around how the barrel maturation step works. First is your barrel must be new charred oak. So you build a barrel, you don't put anything in it, you set it on fire, that's the char step. Now you've got a new charred oak barrel. There's another rule. For bourbon, you must cut your distillate coming off the still with nothing but pure water to bring it down to no more than 62.5% alcohol before you go into the barrel. Now you're going to mature it in the barrel, and both whiskey and bourbon have to be bottled at not less than 40% alcohol, which is 80 proof. There's a couple more rules for bourbon that are specific to it. One is, It has no additives for color or flavor. It's only spirit with that particular rule. And that means that when you're drinking bourbon, you're gonna know that you've got quality product that hasn't been artificially manipulated in any way. can't, it's against the law. And the final rule is, it must be a product of the United States of America. It's geo-restricted. We own it. We're not gonna make Scotch whiskey, Canadian whiskey, Irish whiskey. They're not gonna make bourbon whiskey. That's our problem. There you have it.
0: That's what bourbon is. Thanks a lot. That was Tim Nittle of Distilled Living. Thanks, Tim. Now for a complete change of topic: nuclear weapons. As you know, it was 75 years ago that the U.S. dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan. The two bombs were dropped on August 6 and August 9, 1945. The first bomb killed 140,000 people, mostly civilians, in Hiroshima, while the second bomb killed 74,000 people in Nagasaki. Now, scientists obviously played a critical role in developing this atomic bomb technology. And when I wondered how Bench Talk could observe this grisly event, a single man immediately came to my mind. Barry Commoner. The New York Times describes Barry Commoner as, quote, a founder of modern ecology and one of its most provocative thinkers and mobilizers in making environmentalism a people's political cause, unquote. Dr. Commoner, who passed away eight years ago, worked at Washington University in St. Louis for 34 years as a professor of plant physiology and as a professor of environmental studies. I did my sabbatical at WashU many years ago, and my sponsor's lab was in the same space as Barry Commoner's former lab. We are both plant physiologists, in fact. I remember one time I was sitting on a picnic table that was located outside the lab and I was having my afternoon cup of tea and my collaborator came by and told me that that very same table was where Dr. Commoner ate his lunches. I thought that was really cool. Not satisfied with his spot in the ivory tower, however, Barry Commoner is considered one of the founders of the modern environmental movement. In the late 1950s, he helped establish the Baby Tooth Survey, where they collected a third of a million baby teeth from around St. Louis, Missouri. They analyzed these teeth for strontium-90, a cancer-causing radioactive isotope generated by the some 400 atomic tests carried out prior to that time. Strontium-90 sort of acts like calcium, and this survey showed that children were absorbing this radioactivity through drinking water and milk. Professor Commoner was also an activist, and he fought hard to convince President John Kennedy to sign on to the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, which Kennedy did in 1963. Commoner wrote three best-selling books about the environment. He was visibly involved in the very first Earth Day in 1970, and that earned him a cover on Time magazine and the title of The Paul Revere of Ecology. Barry Commoner even ran for president in the Citizens Party in 1980. He received a quarter million votes in that election, but lost to Ronald Reagan. To acknowledge the 75 years since the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings, I'd like you to hear part of an interview that Barry Commoner had with Scientific American magazine back in 1997. It was the occasion of his 80th birthday, and it's about the important role that independent scientists and the general public have in influencing science policy. Now, I don't have a recording of the interview, so I put on my thespian hat and played the part of Dr. Commoner myself. And the interviewer, Alan Hall, is played by my favorite online text-to-speech converter. Let's hear him now. Happy birthday,
3: Dr. Commoner. You became a powerful voice for protecting the environment years before most of us ever heard the words environmentalist or green. What led you to become an environmental activist?
0: Well, my entry into the environmental arena was through the issue that so dramatically and destructively demonstrates the link between science and social action, nuclear weapons. These weapons were conceived and created by a small band of physicists and chemists, but they remain a cataclysmic threat to the whole of society and the natural environment. World War II had hardly ended when... Not satisfied with the wartime bombs that killed hundreds of thousands of people in Japan, the U.S. and the Soviet Union began testing newer and nastier ones, creating enormous amounts of radioactivity that spread through the air worldwide, descending as fallout. Many atomic scientists, though, alarmed by the consequences of their wartime work, protested, but the test continued and were even expanded. The nuclear tests were done in secret, marked only by Atomic Energy Commission announcements that the emitted radiation was confined to the test area and in any case deemed, quote, harmless. This convenient conclusion reflected the AEC's assumption that the radioactive debris would remain aloft in the stratosphere for years, allowing time for much of that radioactivity to decay.
3: We now know that those assumptions were very wrong indeed. How could
0: that have happened? The AEC had at its command an army of highly skilled scientists. Although they knew how to design and build nuclear bombs, it somehow escaped their notice that rainfall washes suspended material out of the air. Or that children drink milk and concentrate iodine in their growing thyroids. I believe that the main reason for the AEC's failure is less complex than a cover-up, but equally devastating. The AEC scientists were so narrowly focused on arming the United States for nuclear war that they failed to perceive facts, even widely known ones, that were outside their limited field of vision.
3: So, how did the truth about the dangers of weapons testing finally come out?
0: Well, after 1954, when some of the secret reports were declassified, independent scientists were able to further analyze the fallout data that AEC scientists had developed, but had failed to understand. This new analysis confirmed that they had grossly underestimated the dangers. E.B. Lewis, a geneticist at Caltech, the California Institute of Technology, he showed that iodine-131, a major fallout component, was likely to cause thyroid tumors in children. Linus Pauling, the noted chemist, added carbon-14 to the roster of fallout hazards. Norman Bauer, a chemist at Utah State University, and E.W. Pfeiffer, a University of Montana zoologist, showed that there were high local fallout concentrations near but outside that Nevada test site. And Ervil Graham, a Canadian botanist, showed that the extraordinary capacity of lichens to absorb fallout directly from the air greatly amplified the hazard to the native peoples in the Arctic.
3: But ultimately, wasn't it public opposition that halted the tests?
0: Well, the AEC taught us that when science is forced to serve a powerful, self-justified purpose, it becomes too narrow to serve the wider needs of society. It was those independent scientists outside of the Atomic Energy Commission who understood their obligation to society. It was they who met society's need for the truth. When the Committee for Nuclear Information was first organized in St. Louis in 1958, we brought scientists and civic-minded citizens together. Our task was to explain to the public, first in St. Louis, but then nationally, how splitting a few pounds of atoms could turn something as mild as milk into a devastating global poison. And at about that time, several of us met with Linus Pauling in St. Louis and together drafted the petition eventually signed by thousands of scientists worldwide, that is credited with persuading President Kennedy to propose the 1963 Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, the first of continuing international actions to fully cage this nuclear beast. Do
3: you consider the ratification of the treaty the real victory?
0: No doubt about it. The U.S. Senate was a nest of cold warriors and, according to common wisdom, was unlikely to ratify that treaty. But the Senate was besieged by letters, many of them from parents who abhorred the idea of raising their children with radioactive fallout embedded in their bodies. What convinced the Senators was not so much their constituents' fear of radiation, but that they were informed. They knew how to spell strontium-90 and could explain precisely why it was so dangerous. The treaty was easily ratified.
3: The key lesson, then, in opposing nuclear weapons was the power of an informed public.
0: Absolutely. The nuclear test ban treaty victory was an early indication of the collaborative strength of science and social action. It was this conclusion that led the Committee for Nuclear Information to become the Committee for Environmental Information and to extend its mission to the environmental crisis as a whole.
3: When you refer to the environmental crisis, what exactly do you mean?
0: Well, the environmental crisis arises from a fundamental fault. Our systems of production in industry, agriculture, energy and transportation Essential as they are, they make people sick and die. The modern assault on the environment began about 50 years ago, during and immediately after World War II. The sharp rise in environmental pollution in the 20 years following World War II could be traced to such new technologies of production, like new ways of producing electric power, transportation, and food, that while they generated these valuable goods now violently assaulted the environment as well. The changes were massive and fast. In less than two decades, the amount of automotive horsepower increased fourfold. Of inorganic nitrogen fertilizer, sevenfold. Of synthetic organic chemicals, twentyfold. These were man-made mistakes that were therefore within our power to remedy The mistakes were made by the automobile companies when they decided to build bigger cars with high-compression engines that, for the first time, emitted nitrogen oxides into the air, which then triggered the smog reaction, or by the petrochemical industry that persuaded farmers to spread huge amounts of toxic pesticides on their land, many of them carcinogenic, by electric companies that believing propaganda that nuclear power would be, quote, too cheap to meter, unquote, built the plants that generate highly radioactive spent fuel, which is yet to be dealt with. I am grateful that my own adult life has covered this span of time, so that I've witnessed most of the notorious environmental blunders that led to the crisis, sometimes as simply as a bystander, other times, I was an attentive observer, and at least once, in the case of DDT, as an unwitting perpetrator.
3: Wasn't tackling environmental problems caused by industry a very
0: different kind of task from banning the bomb? Not at all. First, the scientists, engineers, and technologists who designed and built the new technologies, not to speak of their corporate masters, gave no public notice of their environmental faults, because they were either unaware of them, or uninterested in them, or in some cases, deceitful. The vaunted sorcery of modern technology was hard at work, but environmentally, it was in the hands of apprentices. And second, outsiders were needed to set things right, or at least to help the American people learn what went wrong and why. In every case, The environmental hazards were made known only by independent scientists who were often bitterly opposed by the corporations responsible for the hazards. The result of grassroots action was that the American people were informed, became concerned, and sought ways to act.
3: Dr. Barry Commoner, on behalf of Scientific American, we thank you for your time.
0: Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m., 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP LP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.